Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. L.J. Sisko is the author of The Daughter of Man, University of Arkansas Press. It was the 2023 Miller-Williams Poetry Series first finalist selected by Patricia Smith. She's also the author of Battledore, Finishing Line Press, a chapbook about early motherhood. Sisko's poems have been anthologized in Best New Poets and Let Me Say This, a Dolly Parton poetry anthology, Madville Publishing and have appeared in publications such as Plowshares, The Missouri Reviews, Poem of the Week, and Mississippi Review, among others. An MFA in Poetry from the New England College, a Virginia Center for Creative Arts Fellow, and a 2022 Palm Beach Poetry Festival Thomas Lux Scholar, Cisco is Director of Executive Communications at Delaware State University. You can learn more about her online at ljcisco.com. In this episode, an adult content warning. This interview includes adult themes and may not be appropriate for younger children. LJ, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much, James. It's really an honor to have been invited to uh, be here and talk to you. Well, I very much enjoyed uh, reading your book several times to prepare for this interview. But before we talk about your book, uh, you, like me, juggle multiple roles. And one of those roles is poet. What was it about poetry that got you so entranced that you found a way to incorporate writing poetry into your already busy life? Hmm. You know, I think that I'm one of those people who came at it a little bit slowly, kind of by degrees. I think it was a case of having dabbled in it a little bit in college with a creative writing course taught by Lee Upton, uh, the great Lee Upton, who who taught actually both me and Ross Gay at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. Um, just a wonderful creative writing teacher, really welcoming. And I won an undergrad award for poetry. And then the next year I won another one. Mm. But I wasn't even sure that I really loved poems or writing them. And so um, I think the truth is that once I was really kind of literally down on the floor with postpartum depression um, and everything felt out of my control. A conversation with my husband actually reminded me that a way back to myself might be through poems. And he said, you know, you were always good at that. Maybe you should give it a try. And so the story is that I picked up the phone that day and called Lee Upton in her office at Lafayette. And she answered and we had a conversation and she said, you should apply to an MFA that Gerald Stern is starting at New England College. And it was the only MFA I applied to. Jerry had been the judge of that contest that I won as an undergrad. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. And really that kind of got everything started. I love school. I love language. I love learning. That MFA was a gorgeous experience. And so 
I started that in 2004 and have just been kind of putting one foot in front of the other since then. So I'm not really, I do feel like for some folks, I will be coming out of left field with this debut collection. Um, but it's been sort of a slow journey on submittable to this point. <laughs> well, I had a similar journey of decades. 10th grade got me, 10th grade creative writing teacher made me view poetry in a totally different way. And I recently had a chance as part of being poet laureate of Dublin to go into the local high school and meet with some junior English classes. And I just got a pack full of notes from the students where there are so many of them said, I'm just viewing poetry in a totally different way now. And it, it can really be one interaction can get someone to see that you do like poetry. You just haven't found the poetry that you like. And because yeah. there's a poetry for everyone because it's such a diverse art form. I do think that's true. I mean, I taught high school English for 14 years, including a course called Modern American Poetry. And um, the beauty of bringing high school students to poems, because I think everybody starts out afraid of poetry, don't they? Yeah. They just, oh, I'm underqualified. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I hear that all the time from people. And I think my poems are relatively accessible as far as poetry goes, because they have a certain narrative bent. Um, and so I say to people, no, no, mine are, mine are all right. Like they're easy. You'll be fine. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I remember the first poems that I thought to myself in high school, oh, okay. So it's not all classical mythology. It's not all worries about death. Um, Elizabeth Bishop's shampoo, which is just a beautiful poem. And I thought, oh, okay, there's space for the quotidian here. And those were the first poems that I was really attracted to. Poems that have stuff in them that are of the everyday. I think the second one was Richard Wilbur's Playboy. And both of those poems are really kind of imagistic poems that tell sort of a story, though Bishop's is a little bit more lyrical. But anyway, I, I, I did think, aha, there's room for contemporary life in poems. Absolutely. And I think your book is a perfect example of that. So the opening poem in the collection, which you'll read later, instantly sets the tone for the book by combining humor and modernity with biblical and mythical references. What process did you go through to choose this poem as your very first poem in the collection? And how? And then knowing it's the first poem, did you look at it again and decide, oh, I got to revise it and edit it because it's the first poem and it plays such a critical role? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, to kind of go backwards, no, I didn't revise it in order to place it there. Um, but it was one of the earlier poems that I'd written. And my sister appears as a character um, throughout the book, as do other family members. And I was a little bit leery about sort of, you know, using her body, as mm -hmm. it were, as a kind of, you know, column to support the book. It didn't necessarily seem fair. Um, but, you know, the events that are described in that particular poem take some liberties. They're not all exactly um, as they occurred, of course. Um, and that poem feels a little bit more stylized, perhaps, than some of the, the kind of earlier poems in the front maiden section, which are, that do feel a little bit more narrative, a little bit more straightforward in they have and that they have a kind of like single focal point mm -hmm. if you think of them as poem paintings that poem is a little bit different because the camera swivels around some but the reason i put it first is because 
The great Sandra Beasley, who is an awesome poet and um, somebody with whom I took a workshop a few years ago, I remember having heard her say when she was talking about how she had constructed her reading that weekend um, was this. She said, if you're going to be funny, you need to be funny up front. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the mm-hmm. audience will not think that they have permission to laugh. And um, I thought, oh, that makes perfect sense. Mm. So in constructing the manuscript, I thought I'm going to take her advice about, about reading poetry aloud for an audience and deploy it here just in the order of the manuscript. Oh, that's a wonderful insight. And it's amazing. I, I, every single interview, there's something that comes out that I haven't heard, despite this being year three of this podcast. And that's a new, new, that's a great idea. If you're going to have humor in your book, you better have it up front to give people permission to laugh. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I do think, you know, there's so much to be sad about. There's so much loss. I mean, all poetry really is about loss in some way or another. And so if there's going to be humor as a prevailing register in a particular collection, if it comes after you wallop folks with some of the weightier thematic issues, it's going to feel a little bit confusing. Mm -hmm. And so the maiden section I did think took a little bit of a risk at the front of this book because it can feel light. It can feel like, oh, this entire book is sort of narrative recollections of coming of age. And these are going to feel a little bit like, um, you know, supercilious in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So it did feel risky. I thought, you know, I don't know if this book is going to be, to be seen. Um, I was a little bit worried about that, honestly. And so some of the things that I wrestled with in terms of the order of the collection, because it wasn't always ordered this way. Initially, it was ordered according to genres of Western art. And I kind of undid that very, very late in the process. Um, So that was just one thing to think about in, in deploying a kind of temporal order was that. Well, I'm gonna in a little bit. I'm gonna come back to where I see a turn in the book, just like poems have turns. There's a turn in the book, but I'll I'll park that for a second, and uh, listeners can think of what we're gonna to get to. But Plinko is such a unique poem. It's a concrete poem. So to help listeners, it's kind of a choose your own adventure poem. Imagine the Price is Right Plinko game, and you'll see the poem in your mind. If you don't know what Plinko is, go and Google it. Uh, Landscape with wisteria. And Girl Icarus are also wonderful examples where the poem is strikingly visualized. Talk about how these poems came to take their unique forms and the editing process to get the visualization just right. I think I referenced um, in an earlier response that I have thought about these poems as poem paintings, Mm -hmm. which is something that kind of helped me into this project on the whole. So a few years back, my daughter had given me a book called Broad Strokes, and it is a treatment of women and women identifying artists, visual artists, including Artemisia Gentileschi, um, someone about whom I knew nothing, um, embarrassingly. And so um, there are poems in the manuscript that kind of are in response to her, her biography, her paintings, 
and in a few other spots, there are a lot of poems that are responsive to artworks. Obviously, the collection itself is a response to Rene Magritte's The Son of Man, which is the one of the guy in the bowler hat and the suit with the green apple in front of his face. And so this is a feminist retort to that. The daughter of man accepts his premise of society, that, that there is a, a fundamental homogenization of man happening um, by, by virtue of sort of post-industrial life. And um, I'm saying, well, if that's true of men, what happens to women? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think the shape of some of the poems was an effort to kind of think about how a poem could work on the page as a painting. In other words, thinking about the elements that a painter would think about. So foreshortening, perspective, um, brush technique, the manner in which the eye moves around the composition. And I think there are some really cool opportunities to deploy some of those techniques. But the truth is that a painting is always apprehensible in toto, right? Mm -hmm. So when you walk into a, a gallery in a museum, even though there are specific elements at work moving the audience's eye through that composition around the canvas, you're still seeing the whole thing yeah. at once. Yeah. Whereas a, a poem, at least the first time you read it, is scrolling, it is unfurling itself temporally according to the line, even if lineation isn't a, a fundamental concern. Um, and so you have that element of surprise and temporality in poems that is not available in painting. So fundamentally, there's something always alchemical, I think, about poetry that there are almost like a like a like a chemical process or like a Rube Goldberg, you yeah, know those yeah. machines. Yeah, so it's sort of like oh, you know, whoa! I didn't I didn't see the whistle coming or the you know the dominoes or whatever happens um, in the poem. And um, but but to sort of argue against that, right? When you look at a poem that is doing something specific and structural, optical on the page. That is an effort to mimic painting in a way, right? Because you're, you're sort of saying to the viewer, I know that you can see that there's stuff going to happen at the bottom of the page, and I'm going to kind of operate on you in that way. Whereas like a prose poem completely eschews that notion and refuses to, to give away anything. Yeah, yeah. Up front, right? <laughs> so Plinko kind of, you know, moves, pings down the page like that little token pinging down the game. And then there's a bifurcation on the page that makes it look like a zero. Um, and that zero shows up again in later poems in the manuscript. Yeah, no, I think that this was, the, these poems in particular are a perfect example of why I think poetry as a print physical print medium is so beautiful and that uh, ebooks it's the least satisfying application of an ebook and also that that poetry has two forms it has the spoken version because if you were to recite plinko you'd have to approach it a little differently than what people see on the page and uh, I, I remember when i interviewed olivia gatwood uh, early in the in the first season of the podcast i recommended read the book and get the audiobook because it's like you get two totally different experiences hearing right. the poetry and uh, reading the poetry. 
Yeah, so your interweaving of humor and cultural references brings your poems to life, makes them so fun to read and read out loud. In Big Earrings and a Hat, you write, We sat there in health class, middle schoolers pondering the female reproductive system's shape, ram's head, elephant ears, O'Keefe with Elvis cape. I just love that whole sequence. It's tricky, and we talked about humor, about getting it, it, about starting the book with humor to give people permission to laugh. It's tricky to get humor to work. It's extremely hard. It's a hard period. I'm so impressed by stand-up comedians. It's really hard in poetry. So what's your approach to humor? Something I spoke to uh, poet Sarah Kabrinsky about, who also wonderfully incorporates humor into her poetry. How do you have humor enhance the poetry without getting in the way of the poetry? Oh man, I'm not sure I do, right? Like sometimes I worry, you know, am I being too sort of glib, right? Like, Mm. is this enough already? There's a certain kind of voiciness that I think um, everybody who uses humor has to be maybe a little bit careful about because it can feel like a mono diet Mm -hmm. um, to the the reader. But I, I think it's been a bit of a process. I mean, I think about... Um, a workshop that I took with Gregory Pardlow at Key West in January of 2019. And I only mentioned this because I actually wrote him a thank you note recently and mentioned to him that this stuck in my craw. He had said um, of some poems that I brought to that workshop, among a lot of other things, um, he sort of took the risk. And I think this was a, a great, beautiful risk on the part of a teacher who trusted a, the student in the room to be able to handle this question. Because when I because when I tell people what the question was, they all gasp. He said, I mean, God, gosh, what an amazing moment. He said, what other colors do you have in your crayon box besides resentment? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And um, I really thought, oh, he's right. I mean, it took a little while to kind of process exactly, um, you know, what that meant to me. But I think what he was saying was who you are, the person that we've been interacting with in this workshop, and then who you are on the page are really pretty different. Mm -hmm. And that I was forcing a certain kind of seriousness of voice into poems, which I think I can still access. And that's not to say that I killed off that part of myself, but really up until 2019, right? At that moment, I had not let it rip. And so I don't have a great technical answer for you about how to access or elicit the humorous voice from within myself, other than to say, that it's just been simply a matter of granting it permission mm. to be. Yeah, that you that you, it's it that humor can play a role in poetry. It's not like a forbidden tool. It's one of many tools that you can use. Absolutely, well, I yeah. think it's very yeah, effective. I think, yeah, yeah. I, I think I was in in a way kind of pruning mm. that particular mood just right out and not even going to notebook with those thoughts. They were sort of things that were occurring to me while I was driving, for example, or kind of, you know, my inner dialogue whenever at the gym. And that stuff felt like, oh, that's not the stuff of poems. And I mean, really, it's been a long time, a a lot of years of learning and granting permission 
and granting different other deeper permission, right? It's like a process that's never over. Does that sound familiar to you as another poet? Like yeah, absolutely. Endless permission granting. And, uh, you know, there was the permission to call myself a poet publicly and not feel weird about it. And that was just so liberating. And then I was thinking about just now that the, of course, if you were to go back in the time of Shakespeare, when the language wasn't archaic and it was the language of the people at the time, um, there was tons of absurdity, not just humor, but absolute absurdity sprinkled throughout Shakespeare's plays. And, and yet we don't fault it for being absurd or humorous. Mm -hmm. I mean, my high school students, I loved pointing out the kind of pervy, scatological yes. stuff <laughs> in those plays, right? And they would go, oh, I had no idea. They are all suited up for reverence. And I think that we can act like that about our poems if we're not careful. Yeah, I suited up for reverence. Another great, great line. I love that. So Prom is one of the shortest poems in the collection and ends with a wonderfully enigmatic last line. Her little sister holds the light coffin. What is your approach? That's a great last line. What is your approach to writing short poems, which are deceptively tricky to write? And how do you approach perfecting that last line that can torture so many poets? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, endings are so weighty, aren't they? Um, well, short poems, I feel like, are, are tough to come by. Sometimes they sort of arrive and you think, oh, I've, I've tossed off a sort of epigrammatic little thing here on the edge of this legal pad. And I don't even know if it's something. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can take months to sort of go back and think to yourself, oh, you know, maybe there was something there. I will say that some of the shorter poems in the book I took out, I put back in, I took out, I put back in because I just thought, I don't know, do they deserve to, you know, what is this? I don't even know if I have what I need. That poem, Prom, stayed in because I was sort of married to the cleverness of the conceit of responding to Duchamp's nude descending mm -hmm. staircase with that kind of bit of suburban scenery of those school portraits descending the stairs with the figure headed yeah. out to prom. Um, and then secondarily, I was delighted by the kind of Emily Dickinson-like reference to, um, you know, death arriving as a prom date. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the light coffin, that's really one of those image moments that um, I really felt like, okay, I've, I've got something here. I wasn't sure if it was going to be the final line or not, but that prom corsage clamshell is the light coffin. And if you've ever seen one of those things, they do have an oddly coffin-like shape. Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I just thought, oh, this is perfect. But yeah, poem endings, to reference another teacher, and maybe this one will strike you as a, as a wordy kind of soundbite too, James, um, Fred Marchant, I always remember teachers who've given great sound bites. And so I'm not dropping names. I just remember them so well. Fred said about poem endings that you either have a kind of Eastern ending or a Western ending. Hmm. And we can quibble about the kind of like, you know, whether or not that's a helpful dichotomy or not. But what he meant was a Western ending is an ending that in his mind closes like a jewelry box that doesn't necessarily tie up everything, 
but shuts in a way that feels like there's some relative finality to the notions mm -hmm. attendant, whether it's images, the music, themes, and so on. And an Eastern ending is one that fades out like the ending of a song on a radio that almost like blends into the next one. Yeah. And so when I think about endings, I sort of think about whether or not the ending that I'm headed for is suited, well-suited to the project of the poem itself. And it doesn't always necessarily match up to the, the prevailing mood of the rest of the poem, but I also like to twist these. So in a way, can you affect a Western-ish ending, have it close like a jewel box as that light coffin image does, but then have it, again, to use the word alchemical, to have it alchemically sizzle into an Eastern ending too. Mm -hmm. So that the reader thinks, oh, that poem just shut with a, with a very sort of finite image in my mind's eye, but that the ideas attendant to that are continuing off into the horizon. And I'm not altogether sure what they mean Right. And you can do the same thing with an Eastern ending, sort of play it out, but have it also kind of, you know, bend the note and make it feel more final, too. Yeah, I love that. I haven't heard that way of describing endings before. So that's that's fascinating. I love that. So I want to dig a little deeper on the structure of the collection, which you've already hinted at and talked about a little bit. Most poets have interviewed, this is my approach when working on a book, they print them all out and they put them on their wall or they put them on their family room floor and you tell the family, do not touch. I'm gonna, and then you mess with it in a physical space that is that all the technology we have does not really satisfy better than just physically laying it out. Uh, so as you as you start to talk about, you've you've broken the the uh, the book into named sections with a whole narrative, uh, pulling it all together, uh, the maiden, the warrior versus the predator, protector, the queen, and more. So, you know, typically, not always, but typically collections are written over years, and then you got to figure out what the heck to do with all these poems that were written not with an intention of being strung together in a collection or a book. Not always. There are some books that are truly narratives that were written as a piece. But so how did you, uh, at what point did you get this idea for how to structure the arc of the book and the way the poems are organized? And did that change? Where did you have to go back and fill in blanks or change poems to suit that structure? Mm -hmm. I mean, the number of times that I splayed out the actual printed pages on walls, on floors, on tables, I, I can't count over years. So I think I you know, referenced the early days of this manuscript and, and I was thinking about it as, well, what will my next project be? Because I put out a chapbook in 2017 that was a kind of postpartum depression, early motherhood collection of poems that felt very much married to my biography. And so after that, I thought, I don't necessarily want to do that. I want to do something that feels more divorced from my biography. So the the springboard of the Western visual art helped in mm -hmm. that. And that was where I began. And so I, I was sectioning, I think, relatively early, according to self-portraits, nudes, animals, genre, and history, mm -hmm. and landscape. And those were the sections. And in fact, those were the sections of the book 
that Patricia Smith saw when she selected the manuscript oh, for Miller Williams. So yeah. I don't think I've told this story at all yet, but when she gave me a call in June, I had literally just reorganized the manuscript the day before. <laughs> and it had taken me a long time to kind of summon whether or not I ought to do that because I thought, okay, the visual art schema is working. It does make sense. And um, the manuscript had had been sort of, you know, um, judged in two other contests. It had been a finalist. And I thought, okay, right, fine. So it's working. I won't mess with it. But I really had started sizzling on the idea of the heroine's journey and taking a look at whether or not the visual art schema really wasn't necessarily serving all of the various personae that now I had loaded into the manuscript. And in the latter stages of the writing, I actually sort of broke my own tablets in terms of letting go of that moratorium on memoir more biographical poems. I, I finally just gave myself permission yeah, yeah. to go ahead and just write some of those. And so then I, as poet persona, had also entered the scene in a way that felt like, I'm not sure these the visual art schema is working. So anyway, I um, had resisted for a long time. The heroine's journey is laughably scant. I mean, you know, it's, it's very much married to fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very patriarchal, um, misogynistic structure to it as a, as a useful construct to tell the story of a contemporary woman. It is actually not useful at all, but that's the irony of it. And so trying to sort of shoehorn, um, woman's developmental growth and an entire life cycle into these very narrow spaces of maiden, queen, because warrior is not always present. Mm -hmm. And then crone, that's it. Yeah, Maiden, queen, and crone, that's it. And I thought, okay, so I am going to use warrior because that um, I think is very, I have a lot of poems that are feisty, that are putting up a fight, that look at the kind of battles waged, especially during formative years in a woman's life vis-a-vis um, -vis sexual assault and various misogynistic experiences. So I needed that warrior section. So that went in. But I wanted to solve for this ridiculous gap between queen and crone. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the, the queen serves the kingdom if, if the king is absent or crazy or dead, right? And she goes about doing that in a way that is highly competent, um, manages to, to lead in a way that is usually in these stories um, extremely successful, but then she just sort of rolls right off the, the edge of the map and retires to Kingdom's Edge as a sort of muttering pariah um, as the crone. And I thought that doesn't, um, makes sense. So I struggled for a while to kind of solve for the gap. And maybe two days before Patricia called me, I had an epiphany in my kitchen and I thought it's Maven. So maiden, warrior, queen, Maven, crone. Mm -hmm. 
And um, once I found that idea, then I started reorganizing. And um, when she called to mm. accept the manuscript, I really kind of bravely asked, can I keep it the <laughs> yeah. way that I just did it yesterday? Which is unusual. I mean, usually, right, um, contests will say, That's it. nope. Yeah, the way that we read it is the way that we want it. Um, but my experience with Patricia and Arkansas has been nothing but fabulous. Yeah, they're a wonderful press. Yeah, they've they've uh, I've read multiple of their books. They're really really uh, very thoughtful editors. Right. Well, you've hinted this a little bit. So date rape is a turn in the book. If poems have turns, I view this as a turn in the book right from the title. The scene is powerfully set. The sandy bed that starts it off. The use of sand imagery throughout. How did you approach the revision and editing of this poem in particular to bring this powerful experience so vividly to life? And what have you heard from readers who have had, you know, experiences like that? I mean, I, I miss, this is a poem that could be triggering and it could be very emotional for people to, to read, emotional to write. Um, just kind of talk about the experience of writing the poem and getting the balance right. And then what you've learned from readers experiencing this poem. I think it's an it's an apt judgment to say that it is a turning point. It was a turning point in the writing of the book too. Um, I didn't think that I needed to write that poem. I didn't want to, but the process of kind of you know tending to myself and the, and the manner in which psychology, the psychology of, of any author enters into the writing of a book is a really interesting thing. Um, but that one was overdue. And I just thought, all right, I'm going to get out of my own way and go ahead and draft this and see what I have. Um, Christopher Salerno's poem, Head First, was a useful entry point because I basically borrowed some of the first line, which I note in uh, the book's notes. And um, I think that I, I, the, the voice, the kind of, you know, manner in which that poem is written is much more lyrical than mm -hmm. I typically am, I think. And so the sand that you referenced, the hourglass, the beach, all of the sort of repetitive churning imagery that happens in that poem really happened in from from draft and so i just am i'm thankful that i wrote it but i wrote it in first person and when i let it sit for a little while i went back and thought i need to do this in third mm -hmm. um it felt like a little bit too much to me. Like the pathos strings were being strummed a little bit too hard for the reader there. And I wanted to back up a little bit. And so hopefully manipulating point of view helped in some form or fashion. But I do think that in some respect, that has helped readers access that particular poem because it does feel a little bit more lyrically stylized. It's hard to tell what's happening temporally in that poem. 
And so when you go from the maiden section into that particular poem, it feels like, okay, we're leaving the land of the more straightforward narrative and we're entering a place where things are starting to get blended up a little bit and we're not altogether sure how reliable, um, you know, the order of events are. And so um, I haven't had, I've read it a few times. I actually don't really read that much and ha I haven't read that much. But um, the few times that I have read it, I have kind of issued trigger warnings and yeah. um, people have commented to me later that, um, you know, it's a, it's a very kind of particular way of going about approaching sexual assault. And I, I thought that because uh, it's a there, I, I mean, I read poems that deal with the subject matter in different ways. I think the way you, it was so um, powerful, but light at the same time, light in terms of not overburdening. There weren't extra words or phrases. Uh, there was just enough for the, for the poem to say what it needed to say uh, without anything, without it screaming at you either. I mean, I think it was much more powerful uh, because of that. And the sand imagery was very powerful. Yeah. Thank you. I do think, you know, it's it was so helpful to me to be thinking about writing these poems as poem paintings, because once I started writing things that were more closely connected to my own biography, I was coming out of I had developed a sort of, you know, muscle memory for for some of these particular techniques and um a lot of them, the latter poems, poems that I wrote in the final months and weeks of the process were sort of more athletic than they were intellectual endeavors. And I would say that that was one of them. Cool. So I got a few more questions before I'm going to have you uh, read several poems from your book. Sharon Schnitta is a wonderful tribute in memoriam for your grandmother, capturing the essence of her, or as the reader, I don't know her, but the essence of her in such short, slight lines. Talk about how you approached this poem and found just enough words to capture an image of your grandmother. I'm so fascinated by the poems that you're choosing to pull out, James, because you are locating some of those more lyrical moments. And I think everybody probably has poems that they feel a little bit less secure about and that's one of them. I am less secure when I remove the kind of governing devices of narrative from the work and rely only on imagery to move the reader through. And so that is a poem that I thought, I don't know if it's working. Um, I'll say this, that I, I was trying, this was written in the earlier stages of, of the writing. So when I was thinking about Western art and I tried for a long time to write something in homage to Carol Walker and I just could not do it. But I thought about the fact that scissor art is a German art, it's a German traditional um, you know, mode and that that cutting of, of white paper and laying it up against black felt very much like an exercise in rendering negative space. So my grandmother's story and my grandfather, they 
were German Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. And they both wrote memoirs about their experience. They were never in camps, though most of their family members were and were lost as a result. But my grandparents managed to actually physically run from the Gestapo on a particular night in 1942 in Berlin and make it to stages in an underground railroad to Switzerland. And so there are two poems in the book that relate to that experience. Um, I was dealing with kind of feminine erasure on the whole throughout the writing of these poems, but her particular experience, um, you know, that diaspora being removed from the geographical place that she knew, the traditions, the family members, everything that she knew, and moving to the United States, a place she loved. Mm -hmm. um, there was no bigger patriot than my grandmother. And so um, I thought, well, I want to write some poems that are in response. Those felt almost like high modern to me. So I was trying for particular effects, visual effects in Kristallnacht and Sharon Schnitte. And Sharon Schnitte, as I said, you know, I'm still not sure that I achieved what I was going for. But if you can see in your mind's eye that little girl, um, a sort of, you know, traditional pigtailed figure cut out of white paper being sort of torn you know, pulled one way and another against, um, you know, a black mat. And the, the final images of that poem reference the fact that before her parents were sent um, to camps, you know, they were scheduled for transports, basically. And so they knew that they were leaving. My grandmother and her mother buried some silver mm. in the backyard. And I actually have a couple of those. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, I know because they went back in the fifties and, and dug it up. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty amazing stuff. No, it was very powerful. And it, it would have been any, even one more word would have been too many words. So it was just the right, right amount. Um, it's really incredible. So Trump Loy is one of several prose poems and very effective in this case. In this poem, you write, I'm untying this blue satin ribbon and freeing our violin from effigy. I'm translating this is not a pipe for those who don't already know. I'm walking to the front of room 2B, past those kids still sitting there in 1982, past me in corduroy culottes, past the guinea pig in its box, past the closet door where you found love's semblance. And that hints at some elements of the poem that you'll have to read the whole poem to, to get the context <laughs> for. But um, so Ballgame, which you'll read in a little bit, is another example of a prose poem. What are the characteristics of a prose poem that work for some poems and not for others in your experience? Yeah, I love the kind of tumble and torrent of a prose poem that it is really relying a lot on image and the way in which image tumbles um, from one to the next. And so a lot of what I'm doing in prose poems is kind of maximally capturing history. I mean, Ballgame is, is doing that for sure. Trump Loy is attempting something else. Trump Loy is a, a trick of the eye and it's a visual art um, genre. People will know um, when you see those kind of sidewalk craters painted so that you think that you would be falling into the crater when you step on it. That's Trompe Loy. 
Um, there are lots of different paintings like that, and, and the poem mentions some of them, including the Chatsworth violin, which looks like it's literally a violin mm -hmm. hanging on the back of a door um, in a mansion in England. But um, so what you think you're getting, which is a thank you to a teacher in that particular poem, is actually not quite a thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, people okay. have to read the poem to fully get the context. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I... At, you can probably tell from talking to me, right? I will go on and on in, in terms of answering a question and one thing leads to another thought. And that's kind of a natural inclination that I have to move from one image to the next. It's sort of like an associative, like, oh, and also it's like this and like this and like this. And so prose poems are just sheer joy for me because I just really let go. And... Um, they actually take a lot of editing in the end in order to make it so that the reader experience is hopefully sort of as joyful as the one that I had when I was writing it. But I do love all the kind of syntactical machinations and the, the possibilities for modifier slippage that happen in prose poems so that you're not sure really how you got from one thing to the next, but it doesn't matter because the thing just keeps breathlessly moving in the end. Yeah, even with uh, prose poetry, of course, as a poet, you can break the rules all the time. And with prose poetry, that's the thing. It's prose, but it's not quite prose. Like there's, I took, um, actually I had in my, my book that's coming out shortly, um, Christina Marie Darling did an edit of it for me. And there's a poem I had written over almost two years ago. And it was, it with just reformatting, she said, this is a prose poem. Uh, and I just couldn't see it. And then when I reformatted it as a prose poem without changing anything else, it was like, oh my goodness, it was there all the time and I didn't see it. Yeah, that's really cool. I have never had the experience of taking a poem that was lineated and finding that it works better as a prose poem. So in other words, and, and I think this is probably because you and I are coming at things you know, if we think about Gregory Orr's Four Temperaments, mm. we're probably coming at structure um, in, in different order of priority, right? But because a prose poem to me, you know, I will often kind of write drafts that are prose poems and then have to lineate. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so it's yeah. almost like the inverse. Yeah, cool. Well, I want to ask you one more question before you uh, turn the mic over to you. So meet Cookie Lady. Uh, that's for listeners. That's M-E-A-T, although it could probably work as M-E-E-T as well. Great title for a poem. It's one of my favorite poems in the collection. It so vividly sets the scene, infusing humor, as we discussed, being brisk and tight despite running several pages. It, it, it was a long poem, but not a long poem um, at the same time. How do you approach editing and writing? We talked about shorter poetry. How about how do you approach writing and editing a longer poem like this? What to leave in, what to edit out? And also there's a risk with a long poem that you you spend more time on the beginning and the end and the middle uh, doesn't get as much attention because it's just longer. So you end up, when you reread it and reread it, reread it you, may, you may overweight to the beginning and the end. So how do you approach a longer poem like that? Yeah, I mean, gosh, I feel like a longer poem has kind of movements in it or, you know, sort of like chord changes and you can really go wrong of leave the reader behind if you're not really um, paying attention to transitions. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think I use ellipses a couple of places in there. And um, 
Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I, I do think that in a way it's like the more you've got in draft, the more chances you you've got to sort of cut the wrong stuff out and leave mm -hmm. the wrong stuff in. And um, that poem has been around a while. Um, and so I feel like I probably workshopped that. I think I did in Maya Popa's workshop. And I do feel like that workshop helped some people said, oh, you don't need this. You don't need that. And, and I do feel like at a point, everybody needs that. Um, it's so, I do feel like one of the things that helps is just to keep moving, right? Everybody needs to keep taking classes, taking workshops, going to lectures, just listening, listening, because it's never over. And that's the beauty of it. So, um, I'm fascinated again that you called that one out because it's really like the absolute opposite of some of the other ones that you that you mentioned. But um, that's also one of the poems that I thought, oh, the heck with it. I'll I'll write the damn story. Um, I mean, Meat Cookie Lady is very definitely a childhood character. And my sister actually read the book yesterday and was texting me just laughing at some of the things that she recognized and meat cookie lady was for sure one of them. So um, what, what I wasn't certain was going to happen. And I think this goes back to one of your other questions. This might be one of those cases in which an edit was made to sort of solve the poem related to where it was in the book. Uh -huh. Right. So there are certain poems that that happens to. And this was one of them up on the wall at Virginia Center for Creative Arts. I went, oh, so meet Cookie Ladies, very obviously a crone figure and cauldrons are introduced early in the maiden section and then call back in the crone section. Meet Cookie Lady, though, by the resolution of this particular poem is proven to be less a crone, less a scary figure born of childhood imagination than she really is the future self projected out. Right. Right. And in a way, there's a little bit of Ars Poetica in the end. Like you can try to avoid this particular fate. <laughs> but these notes are going to play you in the end. Wonderful. Well, now I'm gonna turn the mic over to you to read selections from The Daughter of Man. So the first poem that I'm going to read is actually the first poem in the book. Um, and it's one that we've talked about already. It's called Barnegat Light, which is a shore town in New Jersey on Long Beach Island. It has a lighthouse at the end and it's actually a community that is still a scallop uh, fishing community. So um, lots of fishermen are working there and um, it has a very, very wide beach. It's sort of on the quiet side of the Jersey shore. There's um, some 80s, one 80s reference in here. Tawny Katane was a model um, most well known, I think, for appearing in a music video on the hood of a car. Barnegat Light. In the 80s, my sister, homecoming queen and prom queen, with tawny Katane teased hair and big boobs, got knocked over by a wave on this very beach and walked up toward our chairs unwitting. 
Her bandeau top had flipped itself around, lying on only one breast, like a pirate's eye patch, the good eye commanding all it surveys. She squeezed her nose, then water from her hair, and the people seated in beach chairs held their breath, not wanting to tell her, as though the exposure were theirs. And they all froze, rapturous of her power, an Amazon having removed a breast in favor of hunting prowess. And they all froze, rapturous of her shame, Lilith tanned past a pre-Raphaelite hue, save the lone pale fruit. And they all froze, vicariously frail, Eve in the second before Epiphany. And they all cowered, a cyclops lumbering to a stop over Odysseus's men, one eye enough with which to reduce their number until the sun's glare and a pointed shaft put it out. Milf is a poem that occurred to me while I was actually driving. And as I referenced earlier, it's one of those poems that I thought, oh, that would be sort of a clever idea for someone else to write a poem about. Um, and then this, the next day on that same commute, I thought, oh, you idiot, it's you. You have to write the poem. So MILF is an acronym <clears throat> for Mother I'd Like to Fuck. MILF. The M's self-explanatory. The eye is a boy man's first person perspective, a set of eyes evaluating her body's sensual potential relative to his anticipated pleasure, a furtive cost benefit analysis, taking into account hidden value against asset depreciation. L stands for like, but it's the K in like that I like for its indecorous clack of tongue against soft palate followed by a tiny capitulating exhale, breath that subordinates itself to the future's pulsing throb. A throb I can feel from here as I stand at the gas pump near a boy man topping off his already full tank with aggressive lever pumps. He's like a nearly satiated baby, nodding off to sleep, but awakening with a start once the nipple pops free of his lips. He's got a clamping latch and loud complaining colic. That cry is going to shatter your nerves, the nurse said to me postpartum, and my firstborn, my daughter, did. But I got my nerves back, or we grew them anew together. My favorite nerves still the one connecting my nipple to my contracting womb. I'd never have known how animal and wild I am, but for that burning flare casting light enough by which to survey the ground of my body's farthest biomes. Boy man at the gas station doesn't know nipples or nerves or wombs from Adam, but judging from his handling of this moment, he knows what the F signifies. His thoughts transit from M to F seems quick, prematurely coming without verification of my M status or the length, depth, or breadth of his own L. What I think he knows best is I. He's an eye expert, giving tours of local erect monuments to being. And his being wants me to know he sees me being, eye to eye. And for that, I thank him. His is an affirmation of a kind here at pump number three. 
Even as his gaze travels across my body, he's tearing the receipt hard and fast away from the pump, crumpling it in a clenched fist as his eyes move like the jet stream that rakes then dips across America's breadbasket, dropping heat and moisture down and down before rising up and peeling out to see in a Ford F-150. And the last poem I'll read is a prose poem. It's called Ball Game. And uh, I am a Phillies fan. Um, we were at both game, games three last year during their um, almost absolutely triumphant season. So game three of the NLCS and game three of the World Series. And they were both amazingly raucous games at Citizens Bank. So Ball Game is a prose poem that uh, divests itself of punctuation completely about halfway through. Ball Game. I like to think of the geologic timeline of planet Earth as a crackerjack box, layered like an elaborate parfait, where each era's biggest jokester buried a time capsule. And if we dig ages later, we might find, say, a Lego fallen in beside peanuts, heavier than popcorn, settled toward the middle above arrowheads and Bronze Age artifacts, Viking sod hut outlines and backfill made of oyster shells, well past Easter Island monoliths shaped like those mugs with exaggerated faces, all the way down to the brown bottom where a thin prize hides its hieroglyphic joke. The whole snack makes us hungrier than when we began because nostalgia isn't filling. It only raises more questions the way ethnographers never satiated studied only themselves while they jotted assiduously about the other. And baseball was here before we had a mortgage or plastic and nobody ate a whole box alone ever. And I don't know why I feel compelled to hold the box up to my mouth and tap the last dust in. I cough every time and the flavor becomes the smell, flavor, smell of cardboard pulp and Fanavision where we hope to see ourselves see ourselves. And I love the fanatic so much it hurts when he drives his four-wheeler away and night bursts the field greener with city skyline behind a dream so aquatic, the way thousands of people cheer and flare like schools of similar fish in colors against blue deep water and the memory of three peanuts rationed that if I hadn't eaten them might have spelled out a truth like a lot of this used to be ocean, a historical rune lined up in my palm like breath blowing dirt from a fossil buried eons ago, like everyone waving their foam fingers to the parking lot where their wheeled box waits to shake them home. Wonderful. I always enjoy hearing poems read by the authors. It just adds such an extra element. So just a couple more questions before we wrap. So MILF, you've got this banal moment at a gas station, and then it becomes this wonderfully humorous, packed with innuendo, meaning of motherhood experience, so many other elements woven in, which I think that uh, I, I was recently talking to high school students and and they walked away, uh, some of the card, thank you cards said, oh, I didn't realize I could a poem could start with something so simple uh, and that you don't need to have some grand Lord of the Rings style epic idea to start a poem. So maybe, you know, uh, you, you mentioned in your intro that you, the gas station was a starting point, but then you know, talk a little bit about how you developed this into a poem that had such an intertwined set of references and then had all kinds of fun with the innuendos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, going at it sort of thematically, right. And then we'll sort of work our way backward to the furniture that's built into the poem. But 
Um, MILF as an idea is um, a concept born of a sexualized male gaze, right? The objectification of a female body. The presumption that when looking at a woman of a certain age that one finds attractive, one can sort of reduce her down to, to this particular thing. Even though, by the way, no one can surmise visually whether a woman of any age is a mother or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just thinking about that idea I thought, well, if you want to talk about a mother and you'd like to talk about fucking, right, I'm going to talk about what motherhood is like, what it is, what it feels like in this body, and also fuck you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, the Ford F-150 as the resident F in the acronym, um, was just, I mean, a gift. I don't know how it happened, um, but I i have talked a lot about poem paintings and there was a certain point at which, you know, a lot of this book was written, well, all of it during the Trump era. And so a certain kind of interrogation of Americanness and Americana happened um, somewhere in the writing of the book. And there are certain poems in which, um, American personae like Molly Pitcher and Betsy Ross appear. And actually the two of them appear as sex workers Mm -hmm. in a poem. Um, There's a poem called Pleasure in the Age of Overwhelm, which is a masturbation poem that actually makes use of the song America the Beautiful in its imagery. And so I have been saying to people that in a way, if I were to select two visual artists whose work was really on my mind throughout, it would be Cindy Sherman, the photographer whose body of work has basically been self-portraits, you know, photographs um, that are really exaggerated, kind of deliberately ugly, right? And I'm putting ugly in quotation marks, um, portraits of herself, kind of Cindy Sherman as a political projection of feminine identity in the 20th and 21st century. And so I hope that I have achieved that by positioning myself, leveraging myself as a persona in these poems. And then the other is Jasper Johns, whose work with, you know, Mac and the flags is something that I thought about how do we go about presenting a kind of mid-Atlantic, middle-class, um, at, at some points in the book, middle-aged feminine persona. How do we do that without talking about, well, what does that mean yeah. in this particular set of years? And so the kind of jet stream and the bread basket, right? It is a kind of like um, acknowledgement that we are all individual selves with biographies, yes, but we are also all political beings and our world is operating on us a lot, even as we try to operate on it a little. Well, I'm also glad that you read uh, Ball Game. I'm a huge baseball fan. I hate to tell you, though, I lived half my life in Toronto, so I was a, I'm was a Toronto Blue Jays fan, and uh, and there was, there was definitely a World Series that I will never forget because I was in Toronto. <laughs> when the, Man, I won't forget it either. <laughs> yes, that was uh, that was quite the uh, quite the moment. Um, and I'm a little jealous of this poem because I've uh, I love baseball so much. I've wanted to add to the 
you know, the, the collection of baseball poems in the world. And I thought the way you approached it was really unique. And, um, but my question is more general here. So I think as poets, we are walking around like in a treasure hunt for poetic images, poetic moments. Um, and uh, how has being a poet affected how you look at the world? I definitely know it's affected me. I look at things more actively. Uh, there's just always in the back of my mind that there could be a poem there and I just have to grab it out of the air. The poems yeah. are there or another poet I talked to, the poems are all there. You're just, you're grabbing them out of the air, just like sculpture is there. It's just hidden in the rock and has to, the extra stone has to be removed. So what do you, has your view of the world changed as you, you know, as poetry is part of your life? Um, it's such a gift. It really is such a gift. I think I have always been really observant. And I think some of that comes from kind of the household that I grew up in. Um, people who come from a certain amount of emotional dysregulation, right? One or both parents being narcissistic in some way or another. And, and by the way, I'm still close to my parents. I love and respect them, but I also acknowledge that those things are also operating. And so if you are a bright child, a child with a certain lexical gift, and you grow up in that environment, you're probably going to become a writer in some way, whether or not you make use of it um, at all is another question. I think it um, is a way of living, very definitely, like being a photographer whose mm. camera is always on them. They're always shooting. I think that's what we are doing. Um, I do think that some of the coolest things that have ever happened have been things like, if I don't want to go to a lecture that feels not germane to me at all, and then I end up going and I get fodder for poems and I think, oh, of course, right? <laughs> That's the great thing is that just trying to keep the aperture open as, as wide and as often as you can. Um, you know, life intercedes, responsibility intercedes, all of that stuff is in the way um, I think to some extent, but um, I have written the majority of this book basically from a position on the couch with the rest of my family in the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because you have to. Yeah, yeah. You know, it isn't, it hasn't necessarily been a wholly precious process. In fact, I'm someone, if you give me like a really nice notebook or something, I just can't write in there. I've got scraps of stuff every place. <laughs> Well, my closing question will close the way your book closes. Uh, the notes section is incredible in your book. All right. It's incredibly detailed, the backstory, which is so, other than in interviews and readings, isn't really, uh, poets don't really get a chance to talk about the backstory of the poems. Well, you've done that in extraordinary detail. It's a whole fascinating layer to the book that I really enjoyed reading um, when I got to it. Um the notes highlight research that most poets infuse their poetry with research. There's a whole bunch of homework that happens for many poems behind the scenes, unless it's a purely lived experience. Uh, what, what was your thought process for, because there's pros and cons to including so much behind the scenes um, detail on where the poems came from. And on, one could argue, ooh, that takes some of the mystery away. And maybe you decide, I don't want to read that because I really don't want to know what the poet thought. On the other hand, it adds so much more texture and color and, and there's no way 
you're going to, unless you're an encyclopedic mind, are going to know every reference that the poet was thinking of explicitly or maybe implied two steps removed. So what was your thought process about including that such a detailed note section, which is pretty unusual, not not completely unusual, but pretty unusual. I'd say the majority of books have acknowledgments, a few little notes here and there where they maybe need to do for legal reasons. And then, uh, yeah. but in your case, it was very detailed. So talk about that thought process. Yeah, I mean, it is a pretty fat note section and I, it wasn't always, but I will say this, that I knew really early when I was using the visual art conceit that I did not want to epigraph everything, mm -hmm. especially works of visual art by men, because I felt that just structurally it would reinforce hmm. a thing that I was aiming not to reinforce. And so I knew all of that was going to have to be punted to the notes. Um, and so given that, that I was already referencing all of those visual artists and various allusions to poems that are referenced, um, I made the decision to elevate popular cultural references, material items, commercial products, et cetera, all the 80s stuff, I decided to bring that into the Pantheon so that it is in the notes section held in relative equivalency with all of hmm. those other high art references. And so that was an overt artistic act to do that. And that's why it got that big. <laughs> awesome. No, I, I think that elevating the 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 more modern references also reinforces a point uh, talked about earlier that you poetry doesn't have to be this scary, arcane, uh, old thing. It can be extremely modern and have modern references and still be equally powerful poetry because the poetry of Shakespeare at the time, one of the uh, one of the interviews I, I had recently, it was like you know the. Uh, the soldiers, I think it was Dana Joy who said this, you know, it's, in Shakespeare's time, soldiers were at the plays and the aristocracy were at the plays. It was the language of the people. It's just that it's old English now, which makes it harder to penetrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> early modern English, but it feels like absolutely antique to us. But yes, I mean, you can sort of see that he was pandering to those audiences for mm -hmm. sure. There's certain, there's certain Easter eggs, I think, in those plays that even the footnotes don't really quite get to. And sometimes I think, oh, that has to be sort of an inside joke about right. some character that was wandering around the liberties at the time that the whole audience would have laughed at for you know, an example. And we just can't know what that means anymore. But, um, oh yeah, I, I mean, I it's funny that we've talked about Shakespeare a couple of times because um, you know he's never far from anybody's mind. Can't be. I mean, it's just, yeah, I think you just have to remember that uh, the language is beautiful. And it, at the time, it was completely modern language at the time. And it's yep. only the passage of centuries that makes it feel more impenetrable than it really was. So, well, LJ, I want to thank you for sharing so much time with us today on the podcast. That was an amazing discussion and brought out all sorts of elements of poetry that haven't been discussed before. Uh, thanks for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much, James. This has been amazing. What a pleasant conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch. 
subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings. Wings.